Hello, I'm Peter Baxter, Editor of Developmental Medicine and Child Neurology. It's a great privilege to introduce this podcast. In it, we'll be discussing the paper, The Impact of Complementary and Alternative Medicine on Hip Development in Children with Cerebral Palsy, by Kate Willoughby, Kim Jackno, Soon gi Pam Thomason, and Kerr Graham, which is appearing in the May 2013 issue of the journal. It will be discussed by Dr. Willoughby, who's physiotherapist in the orthopaedic department at the Royal Children's Hospital, Parkville, Victoria, Australia, and Dr. Alexander Krebs, who is a leader of the neuroorthopaedic department in the orthopaedic hospital, Spising, Vienna, Austria. Please can we start with you, Kate, to outline the paper and its background. Well, as a physiotherapist, I work alongside our orthopaedic surgeons in our uh, cerebral palsy orthopaedic clinics at the hospital. And we are very aware that the surgeries that we're often proposing to families of children who have significant hip displacement can be really overwhelming and a little scary for them to consider. And we do appreciate that they would prefer if there were less invasive and gentler interventions, I guess, that would help their child's hip displacement. While a large proportion of the families that we see are agreeable to more typical and conventional surgical approaches, we're really aware that there are a number of families that are keen to try alternative approaches either in the first instance, see if they help the hip development, or perhaps as an alternative to surgery. We were aware of a number of families who were returning to our clinics when their teenager was transferring to adult services, and we were seeing a pattern that the outcomes of their hips had perhaps been less than ideal. I guess the other reason we did the study was we know that often it's a child's paediatrician or perhaps their community-based physio that's the person that's approached by the family when they're seeking a second opinion about whether approaches other than surgery might be beneficial for hips. We wanted to be able to provide them with some information about whether or not complementary and alternative medicines might be helpful for hip development to help them with that discussion with families. So to do that, we retrospectively looked at an audit of all of the children and families that we had been aware of who'd come through our service who were recommended different surgical options to manage their child hip displacement and where they had declined that surgery specifically in order to try a complementary therapy for the hip displacement. Um, so we wanted to know what, what happened to them in the long term, so whether or not their hip displacement did progress while they were pursuing the alternative therapy whether they eventually required surgery, and if so, how complex that surgery might have been, and then what the ultimate outcome of their hip development was down the track. To get a clear comparison with a group of children who had had the surgery when recommended, we were able to compare them to a group of children that we've followed really systematically following an RCT um, a few years back, and that group of children, their outcomes have been reported recently in developmental medicine and child neurology. The paper is The Impact of Botulinum Toxin A and Abduction Bracing on Long-Term Hip Development in Children with Cerebral Palsy. It was in the August issue of Developmental Medicine of Child Neurology, Volume 54, pages 743 to 47, Willoughby et al. So we were able to follow the long-term outcomes for a group of 23 children whose families had gone to pursue a complementary and alternative therapy, and we were able to follow them for an average length of 10 years and two months, so we followed them for quite a period. The results that we found were quite clear. All of the patients had returned to our clinic either with concerns about their hips, so hips that had become symptomatic, or when they came back to clinic for assistance with transition to adult services, it was picked up that their hips were problematic at that point. The main findings were that the children's age or their migration percentage, so the severity of the displacement at the time surgery was recommended, didn't actually influence the ultimate outcome, but the clearest thing was the relationship with their GMSCS. So hip displacement progressed significantly in all of the children who were non-ambulant, so those classified GMSCS 4 or 5. 
So I think that again points us to that group of children as being at very high risk of progressive displacement. Of the 23 patients that we followed, 19 of them needed to go on to have surgery. Eight of those children had represented to clinic with pain and significant deformity in both their femur and their acetabulum, which needed salvage surgery. And the other 11 children went on to require late reconstructive surgery anyway. When we compared those children with the group who had had surgery when recommended, we found that the group who had pursued complementary therapies had double the odds of requiring a reconstructive or a salvage surgery and that all of those children had missed the opportunity for early adductor releases and had gone straight to bony or salvage surgery. Unfortunately, the children in that complementary and alternative medicines group also had nine times the odds of having an unsatisfactory outcome even after they'd had the surgery. We used the Melbourne Cerebral Palsy Hip Classification Scale to look at and classify their hip morphology at their final follow-up. And we found that 61% of the children in the complementary and alternative therapies group had hips that could be classified as either grade 4, 5 or 6. So at the top end of the scale and being significantly subluxed, dislocated or hips that had had salvage surgery. So unfortunately, many of them went on to have surgery. Those surgeries were much more complex and they had poorer outcomes despite the opportunity for later surgery. Congratulations to this uh, very interesting uh, paper. Uh, from the daily practice and discussion with the parents, I know this is a problem uh, very good that some parents want to have a more conservative approach and this work shows very good the problems that can result when surgery is delayed too long. The children which had the, the complementary alternative medicines, what kind of treatments uh, and alternative therapies did they do in the time till they came back to the controls and yes. had seen the progression of, of hip displacement. Yes, there were a variety of approaches that the families went away to try. The most common were the Domen Delicado method, which I think people commonly hear referred to as patterning as well. Voita therapy was one that families tried as well as the daily suit. The more common things were probably chiropractic interventions and conductive education. The, the normal physiotherapy, all children get what is the, the standard for the other children uh, who are in regular control with physiotherapy or abduction, bracing or standing therapy. Um, the children wouldn't have been all receiving a standard type of intervention. Physiotherapy or rehab interventions in our area of Australia and our area of Victoria are provided in different ways to different children. They can access private services, services through early intervention providers when they're under five. They can access therapy through schools. It depends on what funding they have available to them. So it's really difficult for us to have found a systematic way of describing what intervention that the children had had other than the CAM therapies that they pursued. For the normal controls uh, you have for these uh, children for checking the progression, how often does they come to your institution for orthopedic check and x-rays? The group that we used as our comparison group were part of a study a few years ago looking at the impact of Botox and hip bracing. And so they were followed quite routinely throughout the study and then afterwards. After the study, they would have been followed at a frequency fairly standard for any of the children who come through our clinics. So depending on whether they've recently had surgery, the frequency of review might increase. But generally, the children would have been reviewed at a frequency similar to the Australian guidelines we have for hip surveillance. 
So they would have been having regular hip surveillance x-rays, generally six monthly at GMFCS 4 or 5, but perhaps 12 monthly if they were on one of the, at the lower end of the GMFCS scale. Does that answer your question? So that would be the frequency for the comparison group, so the children yeah. who were seen regularly and had the surgery when it was recommended. For the, for the children in the group with uh, complementary and alternative medicine, how often did they come for controls to your institution? What we found was that it was eight out of the 23 children, um, hip surveillance um, or monitoring had lapsed altogether. So while they were away and trying the complementary approaches, they weren't having routine follow-up of their hips through x-rays. And so any progression or possible progression of the hip displacement wasn't being monitored. But one of the additional findings of our study was that of children who did continue to have hip surveillance x-rays done at a frequency of at least one or less than one every two years were much more likely to have an unsatisfactory hip outcome in the end as well. So it appeared that perhaps even maintaining a low level of hip surveillance even while pursuing the complementary therapy might have provided the opportunity for parents to reconsider surgery a little earlier and perhaps have a better final outcome. Do you have now a guideline for the parents who have a very, very conservative uh, approaches at time where they should at least uh, come for the next uh, x-ray if they don't want to have it every six months? Yes, I think what the paper has given us is also a language that the parents can understand. So Kim Jackno, uh, the statistician that helped us out on the study, was really helpful in helping us use statistics that would be meaningful to the families. So being able to use words with them like their child being nine times more likely to have an unsatisfactory outcome in the future if they delay the surgery gave us a language that we were able to really speak with um, clearly with parents. And I think now our approach is that we still understand that families will want to pursue these other options before considering the surgery. We know that they will want to do that, but at least now we can counsel them that while they're away and pursuing those therapies, that if they at least continue the surveillance on a regular basis, even if it's just once a year that they're having an X-ray, if we do see their hip displacement progressing and progressing rapidly, it will just provide us an opportunity to have another conversation um, with them down the track. I also think uh, X-ray once a year is a very good uh, opportunity also to show uh, the parent there is a progression and this will end in a bad situation. There is a really very, very high rate of salvage procedures in this group you have reported and usually uh, these children have also a long time bad outcome. What can you say yes. to this very high rate of, of salvage of procedures necessary? I think that's a really, really important point, Dr. Krebs, because it's one of the things that we're often counselling families about is that if we use the approach of waiting until the hip becomes problematic and perhaps presents with pain or causes difficulty with positioning or hygiene care, usually at that point the hip is beyond being able to do any surgery that is absolutely beneficial. So we did have a high rate of children who had salvage procedures. Many of the children didn't have a single procedure for the hip either. They needed multiple surgeries to try and attempt that salvage. We actually have a systematic review of salvage surgeries underway at the moment and not surprisingly that's showing us that the outcomes after the variety of salvage surgeries that are attempted around the world aren't necessarily ideal. 
um, that some can relieve pain to a certain extent. Often that pain relief is delayed and certainly incomplete in the majority of people. So again, it gives us that opportunity to counsel parents around the idea that we can't wait until the problem gets too severe because at that point there's not a lot that we can do that will be helpful. This is one of the main problems of this late reconstructions. Also, if there is a deformity of the femoral head, uh, did you see a remodelation or good results in these children who had already the deformity of the femoral head when you had a late surgery? I think that's exactly what our results were showing, that even though the children did eventually have the opportunity to have surgery, even those that had a reconstructive approach rather than a salvage surgery, that surgery still wasn't ideal because it wasn't done early enough. And I think that's why we saw a number of the hips or the majority, far greater than 50%, being classified as a grade 4, 5 or 6 on the Melbourne CP hip classification scale. Because even though they got the opportunity for the reconstructive surgery, it wasn't ideal. And even after the surgery, that hip was still significantly subluxed. Yeah, you have in this group a 61% of unsatisfactory results. And in the surgery group, you have only 15% of unsatisfactory results. Uh, so there's really a great difference yeah. between these groups, and I think this is also very helpful for the discussion, not only with the parents, also with uh, physiotherapists and neuropediatricians to show that the regular orthopedic uh, control is really, really necessary and helpful to have a good long-time results for these children. And there are many studies who show that you have good primary results and you also have good long-time results for these children. Yes. And I think the, um, the graph that's provided on page six of our paper gives a really good visual representation of that to families as well. So they can really see in that table that there were no children at all in the CAM group who got the opportunity for, I guess, what we would describe as a preventive procedure, so say soft tissue releases. There were no children in the CAM group who got that surgery. But conversely, there were no children in the group who had surgery when it was recommended who went on to need salvage surgery because they had the other surgeries at the times when they were recommended. They had that better long-term outcome. Yeah, I think with this uh, program, it should be our goal that salvage procedures go to zero because they always have, have a bad long-time results and many problems with uh, instability of the pelvis if you need a a resection of the, of the femoral head. So how did the, the results of this paper influence the treatment recommendations in your daily work now? I guess our recommendation now, we would never pressure, obviously, a family into surgery. We are aware that there are going to be some families who will always pursue those alternative therapies. So again, I guess our treatment advice is based around that idea of continuing to stay in touch with somebody, whether it's us, whether it's the paediatrician that they feel more comfortable going back to regularly, but keeping up those regular hip x-rays so that if the hip displacement does progress, we can see that progression happening and we can perhaps catch it at an earlier time to reconsider some surgery when it might be more successful. I think this is a very good approach now uh, to get the parents informed and not to lose them for the control and at least have regular checks for the hips so not to lose them for too long time.
Yeah, and I think it's about powering parents with the right information to make a really informed decision, not about trying to influence their decision too much. We want parents to feel reassured that they've tried everything they possibly can to help their children, and we know that they just have their children's best interests at heart. But I think this has really enabled us to be able to tell parents the story of a a reasonably large group of children who have gone away to pursue these therapies and what what their story was and what their final outcome was as well. I want to ask Pete about pain, Kate. You mentioned pain in the article. Did you formally assess sort of pain and its prevalence and severity? No, I guess it was one of the factors of a retrospective approach to a study being less than ideal was that there wasn't any measure of pain consistently reported in the medical records of the children to enable us to do that. And again, I guess that retrospective approach is less than ideal, but it would be very difficult for us to set up a randomised control trial of this situation where we were randomising 50% of the children to not have intervention for a number of years. So it was the best best method we could use to study this group and, and see what the outcome was. Pain would be something we would have been very interested in tracking over time and I think we're getting a little bit better at doing that consistently um, in our clinics. But yeah, we weren't able to look at that specifically for this group. Yeah, I think the problem of, of the pain is a very big problem in this Children, it's very difficult to access the painfulness of the hips, but there are also a lot of older studies where not all children could receive this uh, hip reconstruction surgery, and most of the patients with a long time uh, hip dislocation uh, with uh, gross motor function of level of four or five, they get painful. Uh, and then yes. a late surgery or late salvage procedure with 20, 25 years, it's always very unsatisfactory result, also for the surgeon and also for the parents and caregivers. So I think it's not ethical to just say in the actual uh, way not to uh, have surgery on one part of the children, but I think there are control groups in the literature where you can say or 80 to 90% of the dislocated hips in cerebral palsy patients across motor function profiles, they will get painful. And if you wait too long, uh, then you have problems. I think that's a really important conversation for us to be having with families because I certainly appreciate that this is um, a really difficult thing for families to comprehend, to agree to surgery or be agreeable to surgery in their young child who is currently asymptomatic from their hip problem. At the point that the surgery is the most helpful, often the child doesn't have any symptoms at that point. The hip displacement isn't causing them any concerns, but the approach is about avoiding those future problems that can occur if if the hip dysplasia gets worse, if the hip does dislocate, and they do end up in those 80 to 90% of children who will get pain from that. We've now come to the end of our podcast. Many thanks indeed to Dr. Kate Willoughby and Dr. Alexander Krebs for this really informative and interesting podcast. It shows how a targeted audit can give really important information for families and have major practical implications as well. I hope everyone who's listening to the podcast will find it as useful and interesting as I have. I hope parents will also find it worth listening to as well when they're considering what to do that's best for their children. Just to remind our listeners that the article is by Willoughby et al., entitled The Impact of Complementary and Alternative Medicine on Hip Development in Children with Cerebral Palsy, and it's in the May 2013 issue.